Good morning. I will say this when I get up here. Y'all do look familiar. <laughs> I think I've seen y'all somewhere before, but can't remember where. <laughs> oh, man. It's good to be with you once again to proclaim God's Word and hope we get something out of the lesson today. A few weeks ago, while we were filling in, we did a sermon about the crown of thorns that was placed upon Jesus' head during that time of the mockery trial before His crucifixion. This morning we want to look at another aspect of that scene or that time period through that mockery to His crucifixion. If you will, you will turn with me to John chapter 20 and we'll begin with verse 24 and read through verse 29. It said, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands and the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were again inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put your hand, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, said, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, you, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That reading presents something a little unusual, as we would say, about the life of Christ. We realize when we begin reading of him and of his history that he was born and raised as a, the son of Joseph who was a carpenter in the city of Nazareth. He grew up around that carpenter shop and no doubt even learned the trade as he was growing up in that household like any Jewish young man would do in that day and time. He knew what nails were used for. They were used to hold things together. As his father built those different things that people wanted from him or ordered from him and he helped them do that very thing. The nails that were used in the day of Christ were not like what we have today. They were crude looking in that respect and not as finery or like we see them today in our day and time when we put things together. But what is unusual is this. He was raised a carpenter's son, but in this verse 25 is the first time that the word nails is used in relation to the Son of God. He's only here. Raised in a carpenter's house, but nails only mentioned here as he talks with Thomas and those in the upper room. When we look at that scene and when they talk about it, we realize that Christ was telling Thomas and others, I want you to see, see where they drove the big nails in each of my hands and the ones in my feet. And we realize when we read of that crucifixion scene, we realize those nails were like railroad spike type of type of nails, very huge in that respect. And that was the only three things that was holding him to that cruel cross was those three nails. It is hard for us to imagine the kind of pain and agony that anyone went through when that when they were called upon when they've gone to trial and said, Your sentence will be crucifixion. You know, you could almost see the dread in their eyes because they, many people had seen others being crucified 
and understood the agony and the pain that those people went through and that they could hang on that cross for days before they finally passed away from exhaustion. But we realize those three nails only held him up. Well, those three nails did something else. There's several things which those nails did on that occasion and still do even now. We look at ourselves in the 21st century. And one of the things those nails do is they nail down the faithfulness of God. The Bible makes it very plain unto us, not only the ability of God, from the beginning as He created all things, as we watch as, the, as time unfold and as the earth increases, the things that continue that God continues to do in this old world He, we, he created and that we live in. So we know visibility, but also the Bible makes us plain His dependability. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20, the Apostle Paul writing to the second time to that congregation says, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. Notice there as Paul writes, he begins saying, All the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is what He has promised He has done, He will carry out. We're familiar with Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20 which reminds us, Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than, than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. As we look at here, as we look at through the Word of God, we can see known the ability of God. His promises are always yes. He carries them out. But we also know that He can do abundantly far than all our imaginations can ever put together. Look at Hebrews 11.11. There by faith Sarah herself received power to conceive even when it was past the age since she considered Him faithful who had promised. Who promised her she would have a child in her old age? Past the time of childbirth, it was the God of heaven. He said unto her, you will have a child. Through this child will be blessed all the nations of the earth. And it became a reality in past time to conceive, she brought forth Isaac into this world, this son of promise. But there are two verses which really prove to us above anything else about the dependability and ability of God. One is in Titus 1 and verse 2. Hope of eternal life which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Notice there, as Paul writing to friend time, tells us first of all, God who does not lie. The Hebrew writer in Hebrews 6 and 18 said, So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. Notice again, the Hebrew writer emphasizes the fact it is impossible for God to lie. Paul told us from the Corinthian letter that all of his promises have yes in him. Therefore we know all the things He has promised to has carried out, He has. And the promises are made in the future about the second coming we know will become a reality because the promises of the past have proved Him true. And He cannot lie. But there is another side to this. Not only do we have the proof 
of ability and the dependability of God. That whatever He's promised, He will carry out. The good things, the promise of Christ's coming, the unfolding of all that through the Old Testament, its reality as the Gospel writers pin unto us what happened when He was born and lived His life on this earth. Those are the good things that promise the fact that He died on the cross for all of us. Those promises God made became a reality. But we got to turn the coin over. If God is faithful for the good promises, then the threats He makes also will be carried out. When we look at John 8.24, Christ said, I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Here is a promise. This is a reality. I am the Son of God. Believe in me and obey me. You'll become a child of mine. Your sins will be forgiven. You'll live in harmony with my will. But if you do not, you will die in your sins. And that is having reference to eternal death. On the other side. Well, back in Matthew 10, verse 32, beginning when he said, For everyone who confesses me before men, I will confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Again, the promise being, if you believe in me, I will acknowledge the fact that you are my child. You deny me, and I'll say to my Father, I never knew you. There is the other side of that promise. What about Hebrews 10, 11, uh, 10, 26 and 27? It says, For we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and of a fury of the fire that will consume the adversaries. Here, Christ, through the Hebrew writer, made a promise. If we go on after we become a child of God, we go on, keep sinning. There is nothing else. There is nothing else. You've walked away from the only means of salvation. You've walked from the only means to gain heaven itself. When you walk away from me, there is nothing. The promises of good, even those promises of damnation, God will carry out His promises. And the nails on the cross have nailed down the fact that God is faithful to His promises. Another thing those nails did on that day, it was done in a dramatic fashion by the rending of the veil from top to bottom in the temple. But those nails also nailed down the fact and closed the door forever on Judaism. That Old Testament law is now gone away. We don't live under it any longer. Even though the religious world would come around and make you think you differently, but we don't. Colossians 2 and 14 remind us by canceling the record of debt that was stood against us with its legal demands that He set aside, nailing it to His cross. What about the same verse in Ephesians 2 and verse 14? For He Himself is our peace who have made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create Himself one new man in place of two, making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, therefore killing or thereby killing the hostility. 
two verses, basically in the same place in two different gospels, I mean two more epistles of Paul, what do they tell us? Christ nailed the door shut forever on Judaism. We no longer live under that law. That covenant is gone. Part of the promises of God, we'd be living under a new covenant. We have living under it today as it were. That Old Testament law served as a tutor, as Paul said in Galatians chapter 3 beginning with around verse 19 through the end of that chapter. Paul speaks very high. It was a tutor, a teacher to help us, to bring us to a knowledge of the Son of God, to show us the direction that God was taking mankind as He brought the promise of the Messiah into the world. And this is the way He moved through to do it. He nailed that shut with the death of Christ on the cross. And it is again Paul who makes it plain in Galatians 5 and verse 4. If we go back to that law, if we return to that system, you have fallen away from the grace of God. You've walked away from the only means of salvation that God created by the death of His Son on the cross of Calvary. You've gone back to the old law and the law, and He says, I've nailed it to my cross. Done away with it. He also nailed together Christ and His church. Those nails did that. We're familiar as we look around us and we have, we would say, all of our lives. At different times, we don't hear it anymore because things are getting a little more different nowadays. We used to hear on television, especially on Saturday evenings and Sundays, what was it? Attend or go to the church of your choice. And you pick out one and go to it. It's like you pick out a restaurant to go eat. Pick out church of your choice. The behind it was, was letting us be known that we were a religious nation and go, and Sunday was a time of worship to God. We're familiar with the fact that we've always heard people that the church is not essential to salvation. It was a set up afterthought because Christ didn't set up the kingdom. The Jews stopped him from doing so. So the church was in the uh, place in the way, as Rick mentioned on Wednesday night, until he comes again. My question is this. If they stopped him the first time, can they do it again? If you look at it from that standpoint, he could. If he couldn't do it the first time, why is he going to do it this time? The whole thing makes no sense. But But it is. It's not essential. Preach me Christ, not the church. We've heard that one before. Or, as we said, join the church of your choice or attend the church of your choice. But the Bible tells us But the nails that held him on the cross is the nails that joined and driven to to the minds of men the reason why the church had existed because it was purchased by the blood of him who died on Calvary. In Acts 20 and 28, that famous verse that we are familiar with out of Paul's meeting with the Ephesian elders in Miletus. What did he say? Pay careful attention to yourself and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Look at Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and what? Gave himself for her. Notice he didn't say he gave himself for her as an afterthought because the kingdom couldn't be set in existence because the Jews stopped him. It says he gave his life for her, for the church. Yes, some will forsake it. Yes, some will resent it because it stands for the truth. Yes, many will ignore it because they don't want nothing to do with it. Yes, and many with their own selves will try to divide it. But the church and Christ 
cannot ever be separated one from another. They are a unit. They are together as even a husband and a wife. And Paul made that bluntly clear in Ephesians chapter 5. What do you say beginning in verse 31? Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast his wife, the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that, refers to Christ and the church. Is not the church described as his bride? Yes. Yes. So the nails nailed that together. Another thing that those nails put together, nailed together, or held together, is the fact of blood and baptism. We know the religious world around us will scream and holler all day, the blood of Christ saves you. That's all you need. You know, faith of grace only and the blood of Christ will take care of you. Pray that prayer and it will fall on you and all that sort of stuff that goes with it. But let's look at something for a moment. It is only through His blood that we have redemption. And we've got the proof of that throughout the Word of God. One of the beautiful ones is found in Revelation 7. There John is standing before one of the elders and, he's, and the elders addresses John saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? From where have they come? John says, I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulations. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They made their inward man wash clean by the blood of the Lamb. We are familiar with even First Peter 1, beginning verse 18, when he says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. There, Peter calls it the precious blood of Christ that purchased us. We're familiar with 1 John 1 and 7. We walk in the light as He is alive. And we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. But there are facts. There is the proof throughout the Word of God that it takes both the blood and baptism nailed together in order to bring salvation of the soul. We're washed from our sins by His blood. Revelation 1 and 5 says, From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of king of, of the kings of the earth, to Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood. So here even in the last book of the Bible, it tells us, in fact, that we're washed, our sins are cleansed away from us by the blood of Jesus Christ. We're also washed from our sins by baptism. Acts 22, 16, And why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Notice then, the salvation and the calling does not come till after we're baptized to the, for the remission of our sins. So we learn that the blood saves us. We learn that baptism is part of washing away our sins. It is through the blood that we have redemption. 
Remember giving the institution of the Lord's Supper, Matthew 26, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins. It's through baptism we have remission of sins. Acts 2 3, remember the first time we heard the gospel message, Peter said, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for in the remission of sins. Again, when did it happen? Afterwards. When raised to walk the new life, then our sins washed away. We've learned blood saves us. We've learned that baptism saves us. The next thing we need to learn is it was in Christ's death his blood was shed. John 19, 34, as John gives us the scene, he said, But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He was already dead when this happened. We're baptized into his death, are we not? Romans 6, 3 and 4, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized in His death? We are buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might in newness of life. Blood saves us. Blood forgives us. Baptism saves us. Blood redeems. I mean, the uh, baptism redeems. His blood was shed in His death. We're baptized into His death. We cannot separate them. The nails on the cross that held Christ there that day are the things that nailed these two things together. And they cannot be separated. No matter how hard man may try. They also nailed closed every other way to heaven but His. The old hymn Begins by saying, I must needs go home by the way of the cross. There's no other way but this. That indeed is a true statement. Or else we wouldn't be singing it. We look at one of the most famous or the most understandable quotations that brings this into view. Is Christ up room with disciples. What did he tell them when he was talking to them as he began to sit down and just talk with them and to soothe their nerves as it were because they knew something was soon going coming down? I, he says, am the way. I, you know, am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's no other way but his way. There's no other road but His road. Apostle Peter and John in Acts 4 went on to say, There is salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Hear Him, Christ Himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by Me. Peter and John emphasize the fact, says, Look here, there's no other way. Salvation under no other name but His. But everybody in the rich will say, oh, wait a minute, no, 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 no. We can go, we, we got all kinds of ways. We, you know, we're all going down the same road. We're just taking different paths or wearing different shoes or whatever they want to describe it as. There's many ways there. God's going to love us all and take care of us. Let's listen to the Savior again. Let's go to John chapter 10 and verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to ye, 
He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. Notice there, Christ made it again emphatically. Later on, He would say, I am the truth, the way, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. But here He reminds us, you know, all the way into My sheepfold, all the way into My church that I'm going to die for is through the one door. And who's the door? Was it not Himself who says, I am the door to the sheepfold? I am the door. But notice what He says about the others. If they climb in any other way, that is, uh, go over the wall, kick, you know, any other means but step through the door, He says they're what? A thief and a robber. He didn't say, oh, you found the back way in that I didn't tell nobody about except the lake few. You can come in that way. That's fine. I'll take, no. You're a thief and a robber. Unless you're walking through the one way that was nailed by the cross on the cross of Christ. There's not but one way in and every other way has been nailed shut by the cross of Christ. But He also nailed down the love of God. The nails nailed down the love of God. In Romans 5 and 8, 5, 8, 9, we're familiar when it says, but God shows His love for us and while that we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. Many things in life at times do tend to hide, as it were, the love of God from us. Or at least we think it does. There are times when we look at sin, we, may, we look at our sin in our life, we think, that's hid the love of God from us. I, I can't find it nowhere. It's just gone because of sin. It could be sickness or pain. It would be the means in which we feel like there's no love of God because why are we hurting? Unkindness seems to be another means in which we feel like love. God doesn't care for us anymore. Nobody loves us, so He must not. Even in the time of grief, we find people feel like God has just abandoned them. Why did He take the loved one? Why did He take my friend or my mother or my father? Let's look at the nails. In the garden in Matthew 26, 39, there Matthew writes, says, and going a little further, He fell on His face and prayed, saying, My Father, if be possible, let this cup pass from Me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as You will. Hard time, wouldn't it? He still prayed to his father. He still asked him if it be his will to remove the cup. But what do we find? The love of God prevails. The love of God says, continue on. The love of God says, it's not going to stop now. It's going to keep going. Consider from the cross when Matthew again replies, In about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? Yet, even in that moment, the love of God prevailed.
prevailed. The love of God prevailed. We need to remember something. A line that the Hebrew writer gave to us. When it simply says, God talking to us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. A moment ago we just said God does not lie. Twice. He's not going to leave you. And He's not going to forsake you. His love for us is too great for that to happen. So yes, the nails nailed down the love of God. But this morning, what about you? What about you this morning? If you're not a child of God, here's the day, the opportunity, the hour to become one of His precious children. To be buried in that watery graves of baptism as there the blood of Christ will wash away your sins as you raise up to walk that new life that Paul so beautifully describes in Romans 6. The blood, coupled with the fact that being baptized in His name will bring about that salvation. The nails nail that down and that's the way it's going to be. Because there's only one way and it is through Him. If you obey Him, you become a child of God. Even this very hour. That's His promise and He does not lie. This morning, if you're a child of God who strayed from the truth, for the moment, because of sin in your life, those nails have become worthless. Because you once obeyed the gospel, you lived as a child of God, but you strayed from the truth because of sin. This is your opportunity to come back. God still loves you. He's still standing in the road waiting for you to come home. Ask for His forgiveness and He's promised you that He will. And those things will be forevermore forgiven and forgotten. Think of these while together we stand and while we sing.